Morning Twitter. I'm Saeed Jones. She is the wonderful Sylvia O'Bell. It's Tuesday, and friends, let mm. me tell you about a blessing. Noah Centineo just dropped his Calvin Klein underwear ads, and... And my God. My God. Saeed, you tweeted, I am shook. Indeed I am. I am shook, shooketh, shaking, quaking. This, friends, mm. is how you honor Black History Month. This, this is, is an exactly ally. How you this is an ally, okay? Because okay? it's been a rough I mean, 19 days, and yet there was a light at the end of the tunnel. We deserve <laughs> But, um, yes, I am so glad he's 22 because the thought. He is 22. He is 22. Tatiana, I Bust just. it on that. Uh, <laughs> Tatiana. <laughs> She was know, listening to the visits that song. It's been a rough weekend. February, and you know I believe in celebrating joy wherever you found it, and this sparks joy. Sparks joy. Joy sparks. I mm. to all the boys I've ever loved in the um, Calvin Klein. Ad. He looks so good, even his like little chest hair. Okay, we should. Okay, we're on. gonna start. It just happened, so we're kind of just like taking it in, taking it in. Mm. But moving on, I don't know if it's because her friends stay snitching or the paps stay thirsty, but Malia Obama is in the news again for minding her own business and being a typical college student. A typical college student, yes. The former first daughter was photographed drinking a glass of rosé a few months shy of her 21st birthday. Chelsea Clinton, a former daughter herself, former first daughter. I mean, yes. she's also still a daughter. You get it. She tweeted, <laughs> Malia Obama is a private citizen. No part of her life should be anyone's clickbait. And that's the black-ass bottom line. Mm. But I also love how black Twitter's response was to talk about how Malia has better taste than all of us for drinking Whispering Angel at 20. Because, bitch, I just had Whispering Angel for the first time like a year or two ago. I honestly didn't know Rosé existed until I was like 30. And I love Rosé, and I wish I had the wherewithal to know it existed at 20. Because yeah. I was over here drinking Aristocrat. Burnett's vodka. I was drinking Burnett's. <laughs> like the the the, the plastic the bur like if you don't know, Burnett's is like comes plastic. in a plastic bottle. That's how it's cheaper. You have like, to like bend down <laughs> to the very bottom. The dusty, <laughs> the bottom, bottom, like the, bottom like shelf. The blueberry. Like the bottom shelf liquor. Yeah, it's, uh, it's so bad. What else? I mean, let's what just you, let's go. Mm, Everclear. Uh, Everclear. I went to I went to school in Kentucky, so moonshine was. I went to school in North Carolina, so moonshine also. A thing. Yeah, I think I haven't. <laughs> uh, I got I drank a lot of amaretto sours. I to this day cannot stand the smell of Malibu rum. Ooh. The smell of it will make me hurt. I realize that the reason why I don't like vodka now, uh -huh. as a grown-ass woman, so is because I had so much bad vodka uh, in my 20s in college. Yeah. Well, I'm a gay I man. I don't have a choice. Vodka. <laughs> Vodka's kind of like vodka part of the deal. Soda. Yeah. But also, what did you drink when you thought you were being fancy? Andre. Because <laughs> it was champagne. Even though it was like $5. That's Pe really funny. Peach Andre, if you want to get really I didn't know they made it. a peach in. Andre. Andre, let me tell you that something about Andre. Actually. It's like... Good. <laughs> <laughs> you just can't I, drink it. You have to drink it behind closed doors now. <laughs> but, you know, hey, it's my business. Um, I liked oh, drinking when, um, when I got the refund check. When you got check. your refund when check. When I got the refund checks because your kid was a scholarship student. Um, <laughs> I would drink uh, Hypnotic. That mm. blue with the Q. Hypnotic spelled with a Q. With a Q. For you you children who don't know about it. So anyway, we I were super. And also, like, just beyond this, <laughs> and I know a few people have tweeted this, like, Malia, I'm not saying this is her fault, but like, who are Malia's friends? Like, who who's snitching? Who's snitching over there? All I have to say is Sasha's friends hold it down, and you can go ahead and look and see the difference for yourself if you'd like. It's all on Twitter.
Well, let's take our trash <laughs> to the time. I, I mean, points were made. Points were made. What were you drinking when you were 20 years old? Uh, let us know using the hashtag AM to DM. Of course, you weren't drinking when you were underage. This is all hypothetical. Just, just saying. Yeah. <laughs> but speaking of needing a drink, uh, Bernie Sanders announced this morning that he is running for president Again, uh, Yamish Alcador tweeted this, Bernie Sanders, as he launches 2020 campaign, we have got to look at candidates, you know, and this is where he begins to quote Martin Luther King Jr. in an alternate universe, not by the color of their skin, <laughs> not by their sexual orientation or their gender, and not by their age. <sighs> That's right. The revolution is moving forward. And like, why? I just, I don't know. <sighs> So, I don't know what's left to talk about. The revolution. The 2020 election has already been so long. Uh, anyway, BuzzFeed News politics editor Catherine Miller joins us now because, to be perfectly frank, BuzzFeed News cannot afford to have Saeed Jones and Sylvia O'Bell just talk about Bernie politics. Sanders alone. So, Catherine, <laughs> uh, good morning. Good morning. Uh, let's start here. Why? Why is this happening? Well, <laughs> well I mean... <laughs> Bernie Sanders is one of the most popular politicians in America. It actually, that is a, that is a true thing. Uh, and, and he did have like a major influence on the, the way politics has probably happened in the interim since he ran the first time. I don't think you would see without that 2016 campaign, I don't think you would see the, the bulk of the people running supporting Medicare for all and some of the, some of the economic pop populism that's kind of taken over the Democratic Party in the intervening years. Mm. Do you yeah. think that his, like, past comments about race will impact his ability to get the Black vote in any way? You know, it's, it, it's interesting because it's always been a struggle for him, and it's, pro it's definitely the reason he lost the, the, the nomination last time. He just, Black voters did not really support him in any kind of big way. There is this sort of intergenerational divide a little bit and something Darren Sands, um, our colleague has written about and wrote about in 2016, that there were younger black voters who were definitely interested in, in Bernie Sanders, particularly people who are more, um, more into sort of a, like more of a democratic socialist kind of view of, of where policy needs to be headed. Uh, the, the big question for Bernie, I think, will be, it was a lot of his, what was driving his support in 2016? Was it people who weren't satisfied with Hillary Clinton? Because there were a lot of people who, who weren't. And if that was a big reason why he was popular the last time, then this probably won't go that well this time. Um, it's definitely, and then in terms of how they, they reach out to, to Black voters, it's something they've definitely been aware of being a problem. But he he's, you know, he struggled in the past in ways that, that, just haven't gone well. And it's, you know, this time it's a much different field and it's not that like one or the other kind of choice. And uh, he'll need that. to, and, to um, Right. Good point. And, and that's the thing, right? Like you said, it is a different field this time. And, and it stands out to me because on the question of race, this time, at least for now, there are two African-American candidates who are also running that he's now going to be running against in the primary. They're also what, like five women. So I also wanted to ask, I, I was stunned about both the reporting and the way uh, Bernie Sanders commented on allegations of sexual harassment and gender pay gaps in his 2020 or 2016 uh, campaign. So how has he been talking about gender uh, since then? Do you think that will factor in? So that's been, a, so that's been another issue. Uh, they, <laughs> he 
even though we worked on that campaign the last time, definitely women uh, in a wide variety of departments, but it's particularly in the Latino outreach department, um, have complained about the way they were treated. They felt like they were treated uh, in an unequal way uh, from their male colleagues, uh, including some pay discrimination. That's what they or that's what they felt at the time. Um, the big, you know, when it comes to these staffing stories, a big, it's kind of, the, there's two ways that it might affect a candidate. One is, uh, does it affect their ability to hire people, uh, hire good people? That might be a real issue for Bernie Sanders in those ways. Um, people who are able to look at the rest of the field and say, you know what, I'd actually rather work for Kamala Harris or Elizabeth Warren uh, because of last time's experience. Like, I just don't know if they'll be able to correct the problems from before. And then the second way is with with people in the country. Do they feel it tends to be staffing stories? Do they do they seem like they reflect something poorly about the boss that is meaningful to them as a voter? And that that's kind of probably going to be the bigger question because he'll he'll almost definitely be asked about this a fair amount. Um, how women were treated? How how black employees? The New York Times had a story about how. Um, black staffers who felt like they could have reached out to people, voters, um, but they weren't empowered to do that. Um, how he'll talk about those things and whether that kind of affects if, if people in the country feel like, well, I don't know that this person will represent me as a, you know, as a black person or as a woman or a black woman, um, or, or, you know, I don't know that that's the kind of leadership I want, or maybe he'll answer those questions in a, in a way that people find, you know, effective and, and, you know, yeah. Wow. Well, I guess we'll have to wait to see if he can make us feel the burn. Oh my gosh, you've been waiting all morning. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Catherine. Catherine, if Thank I you. have to walk through hell, it's good to do it with you. <laughs> and I mean, I, you know, I don't even really know what's left to say about this perplexing white man at this point. Oh, I have um, a few things I could say, but I'm not. But let's take it to the timeline. <laughs> let's say Saeed and take it to the timeline. What do you think about Bernie running in 2020? Let us know using the hashtag, we are tired. Fucking exhausted. <laughs> well, uh, that was really fun. Let's talk about taxes. <laughs> Kyle Griffin tweeted this. Um, I almost fell out of my chair. I could not believe it, said Beth Calori of Long Island. I voted for Trump. <laughs> I thought I was going to, I thought he was going to be good for this country, but when I got the call about the taxes I owed, that's it. I'm done. I'm sorry. I couldn't even read that tweet without laughing. <laughs> I just here's the thing about Beth Calori um, from Long Island is that uh, it took you until February taxes in February of 2019 for you to be like, wait a minute, something's up with this Trump guy. <laughs> taxes Nothing are else? what broke you, sis? <laughs> taxes? Not like you know, anything else? The racism? No, grabbing by the pussy? No. Nothing. Russia? Russia. <laughs> um, no, but her taxes, bitch, because she thought that she was going to at least get her money back. My girl, Beth, was out here fucking chilling in Beth the cut. Beth was like, you know, we making a wall, but as <laughs> long as I get my dad a tax return, and now even that's turned out to be a lie. Well, <laughs> that quote comes from an article by Arthur Delaney, who tweeted... Republicans trumpeted their benefits of their tax law last, all last year. Meanwhile, the IRS was saying, hey, everybody, please check your withholding or you're going to be mad at us. Whew. Well, uh, HuffPost reporter Arthur Delaney joins us now. Arthur, good morning. <laughs> good morning. Hi. Yeah, we're having a great time here. So uh, I haven't done my taxes yet. <laughs> Shocker. Uh, how nervous should I be? <laughs> Well, I don't know. I think uh, 
higher earners, people in two income households, people who took a lot of deductions are the ones who should be nervous. And I, I have no idea if you are in any of those categories. Oh, I super uh, don't live in a two-person household. I am super <laughs> yeah. single. So. Okay, like, cool. so it depends on how rich you are, Saeed. <laughs> how rich are you? Because that's how much we can determine you leave, have to worry. Leave me alone. <laughs> but, but, but for real, though, like, what is going on? Like, are a lot of people like uh, Beth uh, being surprised by their taxes? And, and why are they being impacted in this way? A lot of people are being impacted in this way, several million at least. And this is something that the IRS and people in Congress knew was going to happen. And it's shaking out as a result of the fact that they rushed like crazy to write the law and that it took effect like two days later. And it's, it's two things. For people like Beth, part of the problem is that she lost all these deductions she used that lowered her taxable income because she paid a lot in state and local taxes. This was a controversial part of the bill. It mostly affects people with higher incomes. But another separate thing is that they did the law so quickly and rushed its implementation in a way that resulted in less accurate withholding. So taxes are pay-as-you-go. You have your federal income tax taken out of your paychecks every pay period. And they changed the tax code a whole lot, but didn't have enough time to come up with new forms. So now these same old W-4 forms are resulting in fewer people uh, getting refunds this tax season. Mm. And this feels like a bit of a political fiasco because it's like this is something big that people were counting on. Will it have long-lasting effect on the Republican Party and like the trust that their voters had in them? Well, that's, that's kind of a question. I, don't, I, I, I would guess no, like we'll all move past this. Um, but it, it's interesting because their tax messaging was we have benefited everybody. Everyone's happy because they love lower taxes. They love how companies are giving out bonuses. This was last year. And then, like you, you were saying, the IRS was saying, hey, check your withholding, guys, or you're going to be upset. And so now the bill has basically come due. And the, the, it seriously undermines the tax cut messaging that they had used. But it's not like Republicans are going to pass this tax bill every year. So it's not, it's not a situation that will probably repeat itself on and on. Mm. Meanwhile, Beth is shook. Um, well, Arthur, I got to say, this was the most enjoyable conversation I've ever had about taxes. So. <laughs> Except for the one where it ends for with the big us. refund I'm getting. Yeah, also that. <laughs> yes. Thanks for joining Good us. Good luck, guys. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Arthur is like, what is happening with you two? All right. Well, let's take this to the timeline. Was there a noticeable change in your taxes this year? I was told by producers to script that question because I actually didn't know that people are already filing their taxes. Are you? I have to start. I have not done it yet, but I don't also extend either. Like I extend some every year. People. Wow. Okay, well, let us know about your tax strategy <laughs> and if you've been affected yet using uh, the hashtag damn, Sylvia, like up for me. <laughs> Well, we've got a great show for you today. More shade. And later this morning, we'll be talking about the FBI's history of spying on black bookstores. But up next, it's Fire Tweets. Spy. Uh, so earlier this morning, we asked you, you know, what were you drinking when you were a trashy college student at the age of 20, unlike Malia Obama? And y'all are trash. <laughs> <laughs> I have you heard of Natty Light? A lot of you were drinking Natty Light. Oh, I don't think I have. I don't know Maybe what that is. Maybe I just is. don't remember. Apparently it's a beer, but... Well, I wasn't a big beer person. Me either. Except when I was trying to sleep with straight guys, so... 
anyway, <laughs> let's get into these fire tweets. This first one comes Same. from <laughs> This first tweet comes from Ashley. <laughs> My dog has started peeing on other dogs at the park, and I don't know what or why, like what's going on. Um Ashley, don't kink shame your dogs. Let them listen. It's Everyone has a thing. Everyone has a thing. Everybody Why are has, you watching? Everybody has a kink. This is going to be PETA's next campaign. Dog water sports. It's a thing. It's fine. Okay. Water sports. Let them live. All right. Next tweet. 4K tweeted, nobody supports you like a social media friend that you've never met. Listen. <laughs> That's real. That's truth. Because they don't know how terrible you are in real life and why your real friends are all tired of you. <laughs> wow. Friendship. Yeah. <laughs> don't. <laughs> Ooh, damn. All right. I mean, well, I'm just saying. I mean, like, you ain't, you ain't said no put know, a word. Sometimes people are like, yes, this bitch is real great online. <laughs> oh, my God. I will never forget. This is um, when my mom was in the hospital in 2011. Um, at the time, I would tweet about Nutella just a lot all the time. Um, and a Twitter friend that I've never met, I don't, I don't even know her name, she, she mailed me a jar of Nutella. Oh my and God. it was like... The nicest, most unexpected, compassionate thing. So shout out to social media friends you don't actually know. They're great. The ones, They're especially great. the ones who send you mail. Tea. I mean, listen, you don't get mail? No. All right, that's your problem. Ah. Right. <laughs> Our next tweet comes from friend of the show, Van Newkirk. He's been on AM to DM. He's on MSNBC all the time. He tweeted, My dad called me at 5.30 this morning to tell me my eyes looked weird on TV last night. <laughs> no one drags you quite like family. And not as early as anybody else either. Uh, you know, does Van, I mean, listen, Van, uh, pro tip, contour. Contour cream under those eyes, mm -hmm. honey, it really helps with the dark circles. Yeah. Well, not saying you have dark circles, I'm just advice, just unsolicited. Look great to me, Van. <laughs> All right, tweet today Ooh. comes from Ellie. <laughs> Ellie tweeted, R&B fell off because niggas stopped putting rain in their music videos. Let's talk about New it. New edition to stand the rain. Can you stand it? Because it will give you a hit, okay? If you haven't gotten on your knees and ripped open a shirt while wailing to the sky and you know the, the rain I know the falls down, gotta do like the two then you like weren't that. really in the king of R&B. Not my kings. I love it. Okay? Y'all tweet us. We weren't planning this, but like, tweet us your favorite music, R&B music video that, that features has rain. Because there are so many. Gotta have Cisco in it. Mine. Genuine. I feel like genuine. Also, Janet Jackson. Like, mm. I feel like I get so lonely, there's definitely rain at some point. Anyway, uh, coming up, Sylvia is going to talk about what's changed since the Time's Up movement started at the Golden Globes last year. I can't believe that was only a year ago. But up next, we are going live from the district. Oh, right. That's when Oprah gave her speech. That yes. was a year ago. Yes. Shit. Welcome back. We're going live from the district. Here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News reporter Ryan Mack. Wow, Roger Stone just filed an apology with the U.S. District Court in D.C. apologizing for the Instagram post he made about Judge Amy Berman Jackson. And BuzzFeed News reporter Ken Bensinger responded, this is the kind of stunt that gets defendants put in an orange jumpsuit until trial. Given the speed of Roger Stone's apology, it wouldn't be surprising to see prosecutors ask Judge Berman Jackson to remand, I don't know what remand means, but it sounds serious, <laughs> uh, Roger Stone to pretrial detention without possibility of bond. Joining us to... Now, to talk about this mess is BuzzFeed News Capitol Hill reporter Emma Loop. Good morning, Emma. Good morning. What does remand mean? 
<laughs> Doesn't it mean like, <laughs> like you're remanded in the custody? No? Yeah, it means you're kept in, you're kept in jail before the trial. Oh, yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah. So can you tell us what the Instagram post was that Stone is apologizing for? So he posted a photo of Judge Amy Berman Jackson on Instagram with what appeared to be crosshairs next to her head and quickly removed it, saying that it was, you know, inappropriate and improper, filing that apology with the court, but then also saying that he didn't mean for it to look like crosshairs. He had just taken the photo from, you know, a site that he had visited online. What, like he like accidentally came up, that's dumb. I'm not even gonna entertain that. Um, I, I was intrigued by his apology, right? Cause I'm used to people apologizing, uh, you know, outside my open window late at night <laughs> on the street in the rain or via the notes app. Um, the iOS he, press release. Right, totally. But he wrote like, it was like a legal filing. So do we, why did that happen? Is that rare? So that is extremely rare, if not unprecedented. You know, Twitter was a, a buzz with this last night because people had never really seen this before. It's not something you see often. But then again, how often do you see a guy like Roger Stone going to court? So it kind of comes with the territory. True. True point. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And why did the same judge issue a limited gag order against Stone and Manafort? So she issued this limited gag order um, because, you know, Stone is, because there's a lot of public scrutiny of this case. It's a high profile case. But I think also because Stone is someone who loves to talk to the media. I mean, after his court appearances, he was walking outside the courtroom with his hands in the air and giving mass, you know, uh, public statements to all of the uh, waiting reporters. And so she actually said that he's not allowed to talk to reporters out front of the courthouse anymore. He's still allowed to, you know, talk talk to people, just not out front of the courthouse. She was like, shut your tattooed ass up. Um, well, <laughs> when is he expected in court next? <laughs> <laughs> so his next court appearance is uh, middle of March. Oh, okay, well, can't wait for that. <laughs> can't wait for that. Do you know he has a tattoo of Richard Nixon on his back, Sylvia? No, I did not Yeah, he not does. Know I'll send you that. a picture later. Anyway, wow. uh, Emma, as always, <laughs> thank you for joining us this morning. <laughs> No problem. Thanks for having me. All right. Yeah, he has a huge, um, Isaac showed it to me, it's a huge tattoo of Richard Nixon, like right, like kind of like at the center of his back. Yeah. Oh. All right. Well, up next, uh, <laughs> Stephanie speaks with Brian Tong, the host of BuzzFeed's new show, Outside Your Bubble. That's right. New challenger approaching. We have competition now. Bring it, Brian. New Stay host tuned. on the block. Stay tuned. <laughs> Do we get to haze him? BuzzFeed News is launching a new game show, and it's live on Facebook Watch. It's rewarding you for thinking outside your bubble. I'm super excited about this, and Brian Tong is the host of BuzzFeed's newest show, Outside Your Bubble, and he joins me now. Brian, it's so nice to meet you. Welcome to nice BuzzFeed. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. So I'm super excited about this show. I've been loving all the new trivia games that have been coming up, like HQ and Confetti on Facebook. So what is the concept of Outside Your Bubble? Yeah, you know what? Obviously, there's a lot of trivia games that are out there, but we had to, we had to mix it up. You know, we're not going to play around here. So what Outside Your Bubble really is, is think about this. There are live contestants that you're watching on the show, as well as people at home can play. So we've, we're going to hit you in two different ways. The premise of the show is there are Two people from two different worlds, a.k.a. bubbles. So let's say like we're talking about dog people versus cat people or um, meat eaters versus vegans. And these two people come from these two different worlds. The questions in the show 
are based on these two topics. But at the same time, we're going to get to know the contestants. We're going to kind of try and come to a point where at the end, based on how they answer the questions and this money that is saved up in this bubble bank, if they're going to split it, are they going to share it? Is someone going to be selfish and take it or does it go to the audience? There's so many different mechanics that make this show different what's out there. And you, you can't be doing the same thing as everybody else. So, uh, I mean, I'm juiced uh, at the opportunity and just to have fun. Um, I've seen the set and it's going to be pretty, pretty bonkers. It sounds pretty bonkers. It sounds really fun. So you mentioned those different types of people that are going to be playing. I'm sure there's like thousands of different combinations we can put <laughs> together. But what are some of the other topics that we'll see? Um, I mean, I don't want to give it all out, but I've seen things like this is a, this could be a fun, spicy one. Michael Jordan versus LeBron James. I mean, people got opinions on that. Marvel versus DC. Think of anything versus anything you could think of, and uh, we're going to do it. So it's just a great way to kind of showcase different dynamics. And I think we're able to have a lot of fun and play within this space. And look, I have to give all the props and love to HQ Trivia and Confetti, right? They, they really set the foundation to allow us to even like, you know, be in this game and do something different. So, you know, you always got to look at the people that came before you, but it is exciting. And we're starting on Wednesday at 7 p.m. It'll be every Wednesday and Thursday. But I don't know. It's like, you know, it's kind of like an opportunity of a lifetime just to have fun. And it's live streaming. So anything goes, um, it, I'm juiced. <laughs> I'm excited too. But we got to get to the point that, of course, everyone wants to know, like, how much money are we talking? Am I going to be able to quit my job at BuzzFeed because I'm going to win so much money and that's not your bubble? How about this? If you played every day, Wednesday and Thursday, and you were the only winner every time, you would absolutely be able to do that. So, well, depending on where you live. Maybe hell, California, hell yeah. New York. <laughs> California, New York might be trickier, but it's a, it's a pot of... $5,000 that you can split uh, every day, every time we do the show. But what I wanted to talk about is the mechanic that makes it tricky is these two contestants, when they answer questions, they're, every time they get a correct answer, they get money that's in the pot. So let's say their own pot is $1,600. At the end of the show, they can either choose to share it and split it, or depending if someone wants to be greedy, they could take that $1,600. Or if they're both greedy, that $1,600 goes to the audience at home. Um, and you'll see how it plays out. It's kind of one of those really cool dilemmas that you have, but the audience is obviously going to be like, burst that bubble, burst that bubble. We want that extra money, money, cash money. Um, so that's what kind of keeps you around, even if, you know, to see what happens at the end. A little bit of game theory there for you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so since part of this game is trivia, I'm going to switch roles with <laughs> you and you are going to host and I am going to play a few rounds of Outside Your Bubble. Are you ready? Uh, Stephanie, the question is, are you ready? I think so. Okay, hopefully you I ready? don't make a fool of myself. <laughs> okay, hopefully I don't make a fool of myself either because reading can be difficult. All right, here we go. <laughs> Let's start off with um, the first question here. Here we go. What is one of the social media platforms Mark Zuckerberg developed before Facebook? Stephanie, is it A, FaceMash, B, FaceTube, or C, About Face? I think it's A, face smash. Yay! Well, let me hold on, hold on. This just in. A is correct. Yay! Hey, okay. Stephanie, you're closer <laughs> to that five G's, that $5,000 grand prize. All right, yes, A, it was face match. Uh, Zuckerberg actually had two. One of them was course match, which allowed people to talk about their degrees. The second was face match, which allowed users to rate each other's looks, which is very popular in that movie if you all watch The Social Network. Okay, here we go. You're good, girl. Number two, you ready for this? Yes. This is near and dear to my heart. According to Talkwalker, 
The most popular tweet of 2018 was of the boy band, K-pop boy band, BTS, doing what? Was it A, the In My Feelings Challenge, B, Cuddling Puppies, or C, you know how we floss. You know how we do that floss. I can't floss, but I wish I could. I wish I could. I wish I could. You can do it for me. I want to say the In My Feelings Challenge, but that's a total guess. I have no idea. Stephanie, do you love me? Are you riding? That is correct. Hey, you are going (laughs) cash money, money. Oh, Oh my gosh. You're killing it. Yes. Do I really want money at the end of this? Does anyone know? Hey, producers. (laughs) Um, producers You need to talk to them. (laughs) Don't look at me. Steph, don't look at me. I don't have the, I don't, I don't got it. Okay. So yes, it was the Kiki challenge, you know, in my feelings, uh, J-Hope, one of the seven fab members of BTS did it rolling outside his car and it, it blew up. All right. We have two more here that we're going to go with. Here we go. Number three. 50% 50% of Instagram captions contain what? Is it A, an emoji, B, a hashtag, or C, an inspirational quote? I'm going to say a hashtag. All right, 50%. You sure you want to lock in with that? Yeah. You want to lock in with that? The correct answer is actually A, an emo- emojis are life, girl. Okay. Emojis. Is every answer A? Because every single one has been A. It's I don't. Like, you know I'm, what? I'm, I'm not the do... one. I'm not the one that I'm going to talk to my team here because yeah, they're messing with you though. They're messing with you, right? Because I'm trying to do like when you know when you're like copying off the test and you're like, well, I don't want to do like C C C. Oh, trust me, I've been there. Just, yeah, <laughs> I've been there. All right, here we go. This is going to be your last one, Stephanie. You're too well. You already got eliminated eliminated from the game, but I'm going to keep you in the game for this last one. Okay. Cool. Okay. <laughs> okay. Here we go. Here we go. What was the first ever tweet by a human? Is it A, a smiley face? Is it B, inviting coworkers? Or C, test? Like, what was the first tweet and what it have? Is it smiley, just the two words, inviting coworkers, or C, test? Test? Well, even though the first tweet ever was just setting up my Twitter, it was an automated message the first tweet from a human, Jack Dorsey. We know Jack Dorsey. It was a quote just saying, inviting coworkers. Oh, interesting. So, well, you it, know, wasn't, it wasn't A. It wasn't A. Although I know you wanted to do A. Well, even though I didn't win and I only got two out of four, that is a very interesting piece of trivia. And I'm sure I can carry it around with me for the rest of my life. Well, Ryan, thank you. The funny thing about it is people watching this are like, wait, aren't you guys just doing trivia questions? Yes, for our purpose... You and I are just doing questions, but it's two people competing against each other while you at home are trying to answer all the questions correctly at the same time. It's outside your bubble. I like to throw it out there. You're down with OYB. Yeah, you know me. And that's how we do. I love it. I am so excited to play this game, Brian. Thank you so much for joining me and showing me how to play. I love it. All right. Thanks, Stephanie. We'll see you soon. See ya. Outside Your Bubble is launching on Facebook Watch tomorrow live at 10 p.m. Eastern. Go on Facebook right now to make sure you're following them and be sure to log on and play. I'm going to be playing. It sounds really fun. And don't go away. More AMCDM is up next. All right, so the NK, NK Jameson tweeted this. Um, I knew about Co-Intel Pro. Did not know they targeted bookstores. Uh, Neither did I, N.K. Um, Joshua Clark Davis, an assistant professor of history at the University of Baltimore, joins me now to give us a much-needed lesson on the FBI's forgotten war on Black-owned bookstores. Uh, Good morning. 
Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. Okay, so here's the breakdown for people who don't know. The counterintelligence program was set up by the FBI in 1956 to monitor black activists. I knew that already. What I didn't know until I read your piece is that J. Edgar Hoover, the FBI director at the time, shifted the FBI's focus to black independent bookstores in 1968. That is wild. Um, why did he do this? How did you find out? Well, the reason he did it was that he thought these bookstores were basically working for black power organizations and that they were, in his mindset, propaganda outlets. Um, you know, maybe like uh, an activist today who's on Twitter who has half a million followers. Uh, the second question, how did I find out? Well, through Freedom of Information uh, act requests that I was doing for uh, my book from Head Shops to Whole Foods about activists who started businesses. And I wanted to know, hmm, I wonder if the FBI had any interest in these Black-owned bookstores. Right. And just for, for context, um, what exactly was it about the Black power movement, though perhaps it seems obvious now, that was so controversial or, you know, uh, troubling to J. Edgar Hoover? Well, first of all, he's very conservative and very racist, and he had built up a whole career of trying to stifle black activism, going all the way back to Marcus Garvey in the 20s. He basically saw the black power movement as anti-white. He saw them as violent revolutionaries. He thought that groups like the Panthers uh, were basically intent on overthrowing the government. I mean, it seems far-fetched, but if you look through his writings, that's what he and a lot of people in the FBI really thought, that these were armed revolutionaries ready to kill any whites who got in their way anyone who got in their way. So let's talk about this because you actually found the memo uh, that uh, J. Edgar Hoover wrote with this directive. So what exactly did he tell uh, FBI agents to do? Well, it was a national memo. It went out to all the field offices uh, across the country. And it said basically that there are these so-called African type extremist bookshops that are opening across the country and he directed each field office to look in their own jurisdiction and to see if these bookstores were opening and then to open investigations on them and not only have agents investigate them, but to look into what they called racial sources, which would mean trying to find a black person in the community who might spy on or somehow infiltrate that store. Wow. Okay, so um, let's talk about the bookstores themselves. Who were some of the notable people and bookstores who were targeted by this campaign? So most major cities had at least one radical black activist bookstore. Uh, in New York, you had Liberation Books. You had the National Memorial African Bookshop. In D.C., you had Drum and Spear Bookstore, which was founded by a lot of people who had come out of the Southern Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, the Civil Rights Movement. Um, you know, L.A., San Francisco, Atlanta, Detroit, uh, a bunch of different cities had major stores that, you know, they weren't set up by black power organizations, but they did become hubs for activism. Wow. And, and something else that I thought was fascinating is that the memo also told them to try to recruit black people to kind of basically function as spies in the bookstore. So can you talk more about that? Well, there weren't many black FBI agents. There were some, but very few. And uh, most of the people who worked at black-owned bookstores were African-American and in general, the FBI had to try to collaborate with, try to somehow pay or extort black community members into spying on these stores. And um, 
they weren't all that successful with it, I don't think. But there are all kinds of stories, for example, of FBI agents going into stores and then making very suspicious large purchases. And, you know, they weren't identifying as FBI agents. But when someone comes in, buys 100 copies of Mal's Red Book, you know something's up. And also, I mean, I, as you were saying this, I was just like, damn, the FBI was so racist, they didn't even have enough black people to help them with their racist <laughs> spying campaign. But just one last question. Um, what was the impact of this? Did it have a lasting um, effect on these black-owned bookstores? I think it did. I think it's hard for us to say for sure. But it was already, I guess, what we could call a subsistence business. It wasn't a big profit business, of course. Uh, black entrepreneurs were scraping by and uh, the margins were pretty small. And then if in addition to all the normal problems independent bookstores have, another problem is you're under surveillance. And not only do you have to worry about your um, kind of what you're saying and doing, but your customers are under surveillance. You can imagine that if word got out in the community that FBI is interested in this store, it might scare away a lot of people. And so I think it really did create all kinds of stress and all kinds of potentially financial problems for a lot of Black-owned bookstores. Wow. Well, thank you for your work. Thank you for uncovering this important part of American history, Joshua. Thanks for having me. And uh, everyone, you can read Joshua's book. Uh, The title is From Head Shop to Whole Foods, The Rise and Fall of Activist Entrepreneurs. Um, Up next, we are going to take a look at Time's Up's movement. It's one year since it began. Remember Oprah's speech like Time's Up? That was a year ago. So Sylvia's going to talk about it. Here's a tweet from Reese Witherspoon. I will forever remember last year's Golden Globes when we stood together in solidarity to fight for equality, parity, and safety and inclusion. Constance Grady, culture writer for Vox, joins me now to talk about what's changed since the last, since the Time's Up movement started at the Golden Globes last year. Hi. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Welcome, thank you. So last year, we saw a very coordinated effort, right? Like they brought activists, actors brought activists on the red carpet. Mm -hmm. They wore all black, they wore pins. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and it seemed like a very unified situation. And then now it seems as though we haven't had as much of a splash Mm -hmm. since then. It's like almost losing steam. And even I found out that yesterday, um, Lisa, the Time's Up president and CEO, Lisa Borders, announced her resignation. Mm-hmm. What's going on? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think last year was all about building momentum for this nascent movement that really needed a really intense push from all of these power players in Hollywood. And right now, it started to become more of a behind-the-scenes thing. You know, on the red carpet, instead of wearing all black, very dramatically, people are wearing ribbons that say Time's Up. Mm -hmm. But Time's Up has still managed to pull off some really concrete, impressive uh, goals over the past year that have been really making a difference in people's lives. Like, can you share one of them maybe that we don't know about? So probably the most concrete one is the Time's Up Legal Defense Fund. Uh, which was founded after the National Farm Workers Alliance of America. The women of that association wrote an open letter in solidarity to women of Hollywood right after the Weinstein news broke in 2017. So in response, uh, the Time's Up movement organized this legal defense fund. It's founded most, it's, sorry, funded mostly by women of Hollywood. Oprah made a big donation and Reese Witherspoon and Shonda Rhimes. Um, but it's administered by the National Women's Law Center, and it's mostly directed towards poor women. Um, the basic operating principle is that if you have been harassed in the workplace and you don't have the resources that you need to get help, the 
defense fund will match you with a lawyer. Mm-hmm. And if the lawyer isn't able to take your case on for free, they have a network of lawyers who are uh, committed to doing initial pro bono consultants for free. Right. But after that, um, then the defense fund can fund your case. So in the past year, they've raised $22 million and they've funded 75 cases. Okay, so does it seem like they're making more of a move to prioritize outside of the entertainment industry? Well, I think one of the interesting things about Time's Up is that it's really striving, not always succeeding, but really striving to be an intersectional movement and work on behalf of women in all industries and from all classes. That said, there are a lot of initiatives they're taking part in that are more industry-focused, like the uh, 4% challenge. Right, because I also was wondering, with the so the 4% challenge, mm-hmm. let's say what it is. It's, it's, it's Yeah, so the 4% challenge comes from the statistic that says that between 2007 and 2018, of the top 1,200 highest-grossing movies, only 4% of them were actually directed by women, which is pretty... It's a small, very it's a small very number. small number. So what the challenge asks is for you to, if you are in the industry, to commit to working with a woman director, at least one woman director, sometime in the next 18 months. Okay, so why do you think there's a focus on, like, a female director versus, like, just the gender overall? Like, the amount of, like, Mm. women on set or behind the scenes in production overall? I think that's a really good question. And the numbers for when you, like, go in and look at other crew positions Mm -hmm. are... Similarly, quite, quite, quite low. Um, I think one of the reasons that they've been focusing on a director is because on a movie set, the director is in many ways the boss. Mm -hmm. And they're in a position to help hire and fire other people. So if Mm -hmm. you put a woman on top, they are in a position to bring other women up behind them. Right. And I know, like, I've seen, like, Ava DuVernay do this with Queen Sugar, Mm -hmm. where she only has women direct that show. Like, an even higher number. So do you think there should be a push to maybe do more than 4%? I absolutely think there should be, um, especially when it comes to the studios. A lot of studios signed on to this pledge. They got really good headlines for it. But if you look at the numbers, that's exactly what they're already doing. Right. right. Like Universal Pictures put out 19 movies last year. One of them was directed by a woman. That's like just over 5% right. women. And it's exactly what the 4% pledge is asking them to do to improve. It's basically a status quo pledge for a lot of these big companies that are putting out multiple movies again and again. Mm. Well, I guess we'll see what kind of impact it has on the film industry. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Up next, we're responding to a few more of your tweets. Welcome back. Okay, so we asked you what you were drinking when you were 20 years old in college. How trashy were you? The answer is very. Very. Um, But I love all of your (laughs) tweets about it. Need Nagel, which is a a funny username, um, says, Rum and Cokes, though I guess being Canadian, it doesn't matter much about drinking habits at 20. I... What's the leak? I think the Because 19 in Canada, I think, maybe? But 18 really everywhere else in the the world. But us. You know, as soon as Canada figures out that racism shit, y'all got it on and popping. I just hear nothing but good things. <laughs> well, we asked you what your thoughts were about Bernie Sanders running and LaFleur, LA Fleur, LaFleur, I don't know one of them. I like it. Bernie says, Bernie has some good policy ideas, but he's so out of touch when it comes to identity politics. I am tired of him. Ugh. Couldn't have said it better myself. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, I just... There are so many things I could say. <laughs> you started to stop I like so blacked many out for a second. I will say this. I mean, it really seemed deeply significant to me that 
Bernie Sanders did not comment on or proactively address uh, the sexual harassment and gender pay gap in his 2016 campaign until it was reported on, right? And, and, and as I see it, the reason I think that's significant, listen, things happen. I, I understand, you know, if you, as he says, like, listen, you know, our campaign grew very quickly and, you know, it kind of like kind of got out of control and I wasn't on top of everything. Okay, that's logical. What isn't logical is trying to make a case for you being a leader for the future of our country when you aren't proactively thinking about whoa, okay, I need to look at my own organization, how we did better. Like, you're running in 2020 um, in the Me Too era. You're running in 2020, presumably, against a president who has, like, what, like, 16-something women coming forward with allegations of sexual harassment and assault. So, like, this is central. This is actually a central American issue. And if you aren't proactively dealing with it before someone calls you out on it, that makes me question other aspects of how you approach policy. That's my issue with Bernie Sanders. Well, I'm sorry, it just happened <laughs> really quickly. Okay, glad, so we you got that, glad you got that off your chest. I, think I, I do feel a little better. Feel better? I do actually. Mm, okay. okay, so um, we also asked you if there were any noticeable changes in your taxes this year. Um, I haven't done mine yet. Uh, eight <laughs> big lipstick said, um, I actually got more back last year, but my bro- my girlfriend got hardly anything. We are both broke, but I make a little bit more. I have no idea how these <laughs> things work. I mean, that's real. I, I think, for- and I think that's why, like, taxes and everything, it's so messy. It's is, so like, messy. Surprise, most of us aren't good with money management anyway, and the tax code in our country is legitimately confusing. Like, right. it's crazy. You know so- who got a handle on it? Amazon. <laughs> Jeff Bezos is the only one. <laughs> is the only one. That's a good point. <laughs> so thank you to our guests, Catherine Miller, Arthur Delaney, Emma Loop, Brian Tong, Stephanie McNeil, Joshua Clark Davis, and Constance Grady. Sylvia, thank you. It is truly, obviously, you guys can tell we have so much fun covering So each much. Other. Thank too you. much. Isaac, too much. And that is why <laughs> Isaac is going to be back tomorrow. <laughs> See you at 10 a.m. Have a good day. Do the best you can. 